O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence. That silence the foe and the avenger, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the, the heavenly beings and crowned him with the glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of, the, of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths uh, of the seas. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from Acts chapter 14 um, and it's verses 1 to 20. It's found on page 1,109 in your Bibles. It's Acts 14, verses 1 to 20. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and they, they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derb and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form! Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, 
who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derb. This is the word of the Lord. Readings. If you've got your Bibles, please do keep them open in front of you, especially at that Acts chapter, which we're going to be digging into in just a moment. For those of you who may be new visiting, we've started this term a series in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where we're looking especially at the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, where he is sent, along with his companion Barnabas and later a few other of his companions, around the Mediterranean to preach the gospel, to plant churches, to see the kingdom of God come. And this Sunday, we're thinking especially about, in the midst of that, the message of creation. Harvest Sunday, we've been celebrating what God provides in creation, And we're going to be looking especially at a few verses in this chapter as to what the Bible says about God's creation. Before we dig in, let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might rightly give us understanding and capacity to apply it to our lives. We pray and ask, Lord, that you take away anything that is not right in your sight that comes from my mouth, but that which is right and is from you, you might deeply sow into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just want to start with a quick story. Uh, The Gido people of Ethiopia are a tribe whose religion for centuries involved the worship of primarily an evil spirit called Shitan. This was despite the fact that they knew that there was a supreme creator God who provided all the things around them, who they called Magano. When they were interviewed about why, they said, we just don't feel close enough to the supreme creator God, so we have to worship intermediaries. One day, one of them, a man called Rurasa Wang, quite a tongue twister, uh, prayed for this creator God, Magano, to reveal himself, and instantly he saw a vision of two fair-skinned men come to the edge of his village called Dilla, arrive at a sycamore tree and erect a very flimsy shelter and then afterwards a more permanent one. And then he heard a voice from God saying this, these men will bring you the message from Magano, the God whom you seek, wait for them. And then he saw another vision of him taking the center pole of his own house and putting it in their house, the transference of his life allegiance. He waited for eight years every day. 
until one day two Canadian missionaries who were called Albert Brandt and Glenn Kane sought permission from the government to plant a mission in the center of the Guido region. And they were only allowed by the government to go to the edges of a village called Dilla. And so they went, and when they got there, they realized that it was swelteringly hot. They needed to erect a shelter straight away. They found a sycamore tree and started to put up their tent. And of course, Rassarang, who had been waiting for eight years, heard the sound of their jeep, came running to meet them, and the rest is history. Three decades later, there are over 200 churches that have been planted in that region, each with an average of over 200 people. In that culture, Jesus is known as son of Magano, son of that creator God who they'd longed for, that they now know. Now I want to start with that, because that rightly frames two aspects of creation that we're looking at this morning when it comes to issues of faith. And that is that creation often causes confusion, but ultimately it reveals a kind creator. And let's look at those two. Firstly, creation causes confusion. Uh, in our passage, Paul is preaching the gospel, and he's preaching amongst pagan listeners, and suddenly a man is healed as part of that. And they go absolutely nuts. They are amazed and so amazed that they start shouting out in their native language, the gods have come amongst us. And they start to prepare sacrifice for Paul and Barnabas, who they rename Hermes and Zeus. Now, of course, because it's in the native language, Paul and Barnabas don't realize what's going on until probably an animal is brought up right in front of them. And they realize, oh no, I know what's about to happen. They tear their clothes because this is blasphemy. They don't want to be known as gods. There's only one God for them. And then they shout out to the crowd, Men, why are you doing this? Verse 15, We too only are men human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. And he goes on to explain how creation around them witnesses to God. But then at the end of that, verse 18, Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them can you imagine it? You're just trying to draw the attention away from yourself. No, it's not me. It really is not me. But no, they keep trying to sacrifice to them. At the heart of what's going on here, I think, are two really important questions. Firstly, why are the crowds so unable to hear the message of Jesus? To know that it's not Paul and Barnabas, that actually it's God who made all things that's healed this man, who brings a message of salvation. And secondly, why do Paul and Barnabas try to use an argument from creation to convince them? As I was studying this passage, I realized they've missed an obvious opening. What's the opening? Well, the crowd has just said, the gods have come amongst us. What could Paul and Barnabas have said? You're right. A God, singular, has come up, and his name is Jesus. He came as one of us. Why did Paul and Barnabas not use that opening? If this had been evangelism school, they would have failed, surely obvious given opening but they didn't well, I think the answer to those two questions is one and the same Paul and Barnabas knew that the root issue that stopped the crowds hearing about Jesus was their idolatrous religion which involved worship of idols and false gods which had utterly gripped them and behind that was a wrong understanding of creation 
and they needed to go back there before they could address what the real blockage was. You see, they knew that Greco-Roman religion, like other religions, had come about because people had seen the vastness of creation and felt very insecure about it and often had posited different forces and powers and gods to try and worship and appease and have some sense of control in the midst of the overwhelming size and power of the universe. And these gods and these powers were often aspects of creation made human and worshipped as idols. For example, the people who first went out on the oceans in the Mediterranean, seeing the vastness of the sea around them, posited a god in later times known as Neptune, who controlled the seas with his trident. And if they offered right sacrifices to him, well, it's going to be okay, you'll get to your destination. And so on for various other aspects of creation. A ladder of religion is built. Do the right thing, appease the right God or gods, and you'll be okay and you'll reach God and his blessing. Paul and Barnabas know that that is the root issue. And that's why, verse 14, he calls them, turn away from those worthless things. Turn to the living God who made everything. You've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. But you can know the one who's handmade creation, who holds it in his hand. Turn to him. Now, why is that important for us? I want to suggest in today's world, we live in a world where there are a number of religions, to say the least. As many now, perhaps, as then. It's been estimated that there are over 4,200 different distinct religions in the world. Many worshipped here in the city, on our streets, even for some in their families. And the question is, why? Why are there so many, so different? And what's the Christian response to that? And understanding how so, how so many religions have their root in a misunderstanding a confused response to creation helps different people at different times seeing creation and somehow trying to deal with it and positing forces and gods, trying to build that ladder to the divine to receive peace. Now, of course, at this point, you might say, well, you as a Christian vicar, surely you're just being hypocritical. Why can't you just say that about the Christian faith as well? Surely that's true about you. And I want to highlight that this is the key difference between many other faiths and the Christian faith. Many other faiths, it's about building a ladder to get to God or the gods. For the Christian faith, it's the exact opposite. God has said, we can't do that, but I'm going to come to you and reveal myself to you. Ultimately, I'm going to do that in the person of my son, I'm going to send to die for you. You can't reach me. You can't do well enough, appease and provoke and do all that you want to do in religion to get to me. But I'm going to, in my grace, come to you. But actually, the Christian faith isn't about religion as such, but revelation, God revealing himself. It's about grace, not works to reach him. I've uh, shared this uh, story before, but it's, it's so good, I'm going to share it again, and you're just going to have to bear with me. Um, Sadhu Sundar Singh is the name of an apostolic Indian Christian of the 20th century who came to Christ out of a Sikh background and 
planted lots of churches, suffered much persecution as a result, but saw amazing expansion of the kingdom of God in the northern regions, regions of India. And later in his life, he was invited to the University of Cambridge for a comparative religion conference to talk about his experiences. And as part of one of the dinner parties that happened afterwards, a professor of comparative religion came to him and asked the following question. Tell me, looking back, what have you found in Christianity that you did not find in your old religion? And he replied, Professor, I found the dear Lord Jesus. Professor replied, Oh yes, I quite understand, but what particular principle or doctrine? Tell me, what new philosophy have you found in Christianity that you did not find in your old religion? And again, he replied, Professor, I have found the dear Lord Jesus. Part of my own story is that I was raised in the Hindu family, which worshipped as many gods, perhaps more than in the Greco-Roman religion. And as a young child, been utterly enthralled by the, the rites and the stories and the legends and enjoying being part of that community. But as a teenager, starting to ask the question, well, is this made up? Is there semblance of truth to this? Is there any basis for this religion? It might be great to experience, but does it have any historicity? Does it have a firm basis? And actually, slowly but surely, I began to reject it and became an atheist because of that. But things became very different when at university studying physics, I met Christians for the very first time and asked the same questions, but this time got firm answers. Of a historical person called Jesus, who really did exist, who actually claim things that are beyond human claiming that if they're true, changes everything, but if they're not, he's to be despised. But I came to actually realize and said, actually he is who he said he is. And that changed everything. That God had actually punctured history. The creator God had punctured history because he wanted a loving, living, lifetime relationship with me and you and all of us. Well, what's uh, the take-home for this? Uh, I want to suggest that this should mean two attitudes to our interaction, to our relationships with people of other faiths. Firstly, the attitude of humility. Evangelism has often been described as one hungry person telling another hungry person where to go and find food. It's that simple. It's not one satisfied person's pouring scorn on other people, saying, you're hungry and it's your fault. The Christian faith involves God coming to us in sheer grace and mercy. We've done nothing to get to him. And secondly, I think it should lead to an attitude of compassion. The reason so many people of other faiths are confused about who God is and creation and how the universe works is because they haven't heard any different. They haven't heard any different. For example, the um, 20th century missionary to India, Bishop Stephen Neal, once said, our task is to go on saying to the Muslim with infinite patience, Sir, consider Jesus. It is not the case that the Muslim has not seen Jesus of Nazareth and rejected him. 
sorry, that has seen Jesus and has rejected him, but that he has never seen him. If you are here last week, you would have heard from Tim and Rachel Green sharing stories about people from all kinds of religions, Buddhists and Sikhs and Hindus and those of Islam, all coming to follow Jesus, that if people are told about him, well, often they'll choose for him, but they need to be told in the first place. And it takes God's compassion to say, no, I believe humbly you've got it wrong, but let me tell you about a God who's come to make it all very clear that you might know him. Well, that's the first one. Creation causes confusion. Second, and perhaps a bit more briefly, creation reveals a kind creator. You see, despite the Lystrian people having got it completely wrong, Paul and Barnabas do, do go on to say that creation does reveal that kindness of a single creation. Verses 16 and 17, look at it if you could. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides for you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. The world around them, Paul and Barnabas say, bear the mark of a kind creator. It's so designed for human life to exist and to flourish, an overflow of the nature of who God is. I want to suggest today, with greater scientific ability to look at the universe, this becomes even more obvious. So, for example, on the astronomical scale, we can calculate that if the Earth's orbit was either 5% closer to the sun or 5% further from the sun, life could not exist on this planet. It's quite simple. They'd either be too cold and frigid or too roasting hot and boiling. Could not exist. And 5% isn't much. On the subatomic scale, if the ratio between the forces of gravity that glue you to your chair right now and the forces of electromagnetism, their comparative strength was one part in 10 to the power of 34 different planets could not exist and form. Solid matter could not be created. And to give you an idea of the slight difference that that would take, that's one inch on a rule of the size and length of the universe. If it was that different, the ratio of those two strengths could not exist. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now, if this is actually true, well, surely that should mean that every single scientist should be a theist, should believe in God. But actually, we know that often that isn't true. In fact, there are some well-known examples of people that are anti-theists and against the idea of a God. And so the question is, why? Why, if it's so obvious from creation? I was once um, interviewed by an Oxford uh, astrophysicist who was studying for her PhD and knew that I'd studied physics at the same university. And she asked me the following question. When I look out at the universe, I do not see evidence of a creator. But when you do, you do. Why is that? And in a rare moment of having my wits about me, my reply was, we see what we want to see. You look out and you don't want to see. 
the evidence of a creator. And so you don't see it. But I look out and I do want to see it. And I see it. That seemed to mollify her slightly. It wasn't the best answer, but she knew internally that actually, yes, my heart does alter the way I see the evidence. What we want to be true will always influence what we see to be true. There's a really well-known story of European explorers who first went to Australia and came across a mammal which laid eggs, spent some time in water, some on land, had a broad, flat tail, webbed feet, and had a bill very similar to a duck. Now, upon their return to England, they described this creature to the scientific community, and it was felt to be a hoax. No, such a creature does not exist. And so they went back, and this time brought back a pelt from this animal. And said, look, there it is. And people still did not believe that such an animal existed, despite the evidence right in front of them. They didn't want to see it. But nowadays, of course, everyone knows that a duck-billed platypus exists, even though they're still quite weird creatures. And the same issue is often at work when people look out at creation. I just don't want to see it. I don't want to believe it. It does not exist, that there is a creator behind it. Richard uh, Lewontin, I think that's the right pronunciation of his name, is an atheist evolutionary biologist, a well-known standard authority, uh, who wrote a number of university textbooks in, over his lifetime. And in one he says this, which says it all, I think. You must be careful as you examine the orders of living tissue and all of the world around us that you don't fall back on the explanation of a creative designer intelligence for it all. Because frankly, everything does seem to have the appearance of an intelligent design behind it. But plainly, that is wrong. Kind of want, yeah, I'd love to meet him one day. Um, the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel, uh, in a rare moment of honesty, put it like this. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't want to believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Another key part of my own story is that as an atheist physicist coming up to study at university, my atheism, I think, was based more upon my not, my, their not wanting to be a God and me able to live the life that I want to live on my terms and actually looking at the evidence that actually, had I chosen to see it, I would see it very clearly. And actually, after having become a Christian, looking at the evidence again, I realized, oh, it was always there right in front of me in my studies, and I just missed it each and every time, and I kicked myself for missing it for years. For those who do choose to see it looking at creation, the evidence of God is obvious, let me say. The famous astronomer Kepler said studying the universe was thinking God's thoughts after him, that every star is a hallelujah. I love that quote. Every star is a hallelujah. Perhaps the greatest scientist of modern history, Albert Einstein, the mathematical precision of the universe reveals the mathematical mind of God. 
one of the greatest British physicists of the last century, Freeman Dyson. The more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. Well, I've got to end. And coming back to our passage, Paul and Barnabas highlight one key thing about creation that you see in God the Creator, and that is the kindness of God. That's why we've been collecting these harvest gifts, evidence of God's kindness and creation that we want to show to others. It's interesting, in a recent survey of uh, professions in Britain, farmers were the least likely to be atheists. And I think that's because they get to see this every single day, right in front of them. The kindness of the Creator, His provision for us. But I want to say that it only points to God's kindness. It isn't the full extent of it. Einstein once said that looking at creation, you only ever get to see the lion's tail. You don't get to see the full majesty and glory of the lion himself. And I think Paul and Barnabas, had they been allowed to carry on to to talk about Jesus and his kindness instead of having to keep the crowds from sacrificing to them, would have spoken about the fact that that creation kindness that God has provided for you, well, that's just a pointer to the ultimate act of kindness and God sending his son to die for us. Paul says later in Titus 3 verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. In a sense, creation's witness is just a prelude to the appearance of Christ. It's the opening act of the main drama where God the Creator enters into his creation, bringing clarity where there's once a lot of confusion, the kindness of a God who not only sustains us but saves us. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, as we do look out at creation, we know that many people over many ages have had various responses to it. We pray for those that are in that place of confusion, trying to somehow bridge the gap between themselves and the powers of the universe. And Lord, we pray and ask that you might reveal yourself as you did to that man in the Guido tribe all those years ago. We pray and ask that we might rightly honour you as we look at creation, putting aside our own desires and biases, that we might really understand what you have done, your kindness shown to us, and that we might rightly, therefore, give you the honour and the glory. Every time we open our fridge door, every time we prepare a meal, every time we see the beauty and wonder of what you've created. Amen.